One or two notices before we turn to God's Word. Uh, if you'd like to help with our weekend, which we're having with Robin Sidsurf, uh, help organize that and so on, then please have a chat to me at the door because uh, we've got a meeting of the organizing group uh, tomorrow evening. Also, we are going to be setting up a catering team, and if you'd like to be part of that, please speak to me. And uh, Craig, next weekend, we're having our first Tayside Free Church's Youth Conference, uh, which I understand is fully booked, and uh, Craig is asking if anyone would like to do some baking. It would be very welcome. Just hand it in to the office. And then the pastoral groups, uh, Wednesday and Thursday begin this week, and the Wednesday lunchtime group. If you'd like to come along to that, we do a study between 12.30 and 1.30, and we um, have a kind of lunch together. Bring your own lunch with coffee, is provided. Uh, that's at 12. So if you'd like to come along, it's in the hall here uh, on Wednesday at, from 12 till 1.30. Now let's turn to God's Word and to Romans chapter 4. And we're going to look at the whole of this chapter. Uh, I hadn't expected to do this, but I, wanted to, I did want to do it all together but it would take far too long to do, so I split it into two parts. So part one is this morning, um, part two is this evening. So we'll see you all this evening. Um, it'd be good for us to share together in that. But we're going to look at verses one to eight this morning. And I want just to begin uh, again by wishing you all a happy new year. Um, you wouldn't say this to somebody, but if someone says to you, happy new year, you say, what do you mean? What's a happy new year? It's not very happy. What do we mean by happiness? And I was thinking about it, how you def define happiness, and I came across this wonderful piece of poetry from a man called Pharrell. Um, because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof, and I am not gonna sing it, and I'm not gonna do the dance, for those of you who know. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Because I'm happy, clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. All I suggest is look at the Dundee version of that uh, and on YouTube. And um, you'll see a lot of very happy people in Dundee. But seriously, that is so banal and so pathetic. You know, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. What does that mean? Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Well, if I'm a... How can you feel like rooms don't have feelings? And if I was, did have feelings, I didn't have a roof, I'd be pretty upset. I'm going to get wet and soaked. So, you know, but nonetheless, people think this is profound. Something perhaps slightly more profound is the American Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, the passage we're going to look at this morning speaks about blessedness rather than happiness. And we'll go through it. We'll go through it step by step. But as I said, we'll only be able to get to uh, verse 8 if we get that far this morning. Now, we're not coming into this. If you're a visitor, we're not coming into this just randomly picking this passage. We've been looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. And just to give you a brief summary, Paul's writing to the church in Rome it's the capital of the civilized world. It's a church which has faced persecution and division. 
and he's writing to share with them and remind them of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus Christ. He begins by pointing out that every single human being has an innate knowledge of God, yet we've turned away from God and we suppress the truth that's both external to us and internal. And as a result, Paul writing to these sophisticated Romans says the reason your society is in a mess and the reason your lives are in a mess is because you have turned away from God. He then talks about religion, particularly the Jewish religion, and how that does not save us, although he says there are many advantages in being a Jew. Both the Jew and the non-Jew are guilty before God, and the only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't leave it there, because in chapter 4, he now goes on to give an example, and it's in some ways an unusual example, because it's the example of Abraham, or as Edith's son-in-law, Ibrahim, uh, told me this week, it's Abraham, not Abraham. So I'm going to have to revert or change decades of saying Abraham. It's Abraham. And of course, it is a Jewish Arab name. Now, I think he uses this example of Abraham for one reason, uh, maybe several reasons, but the big one is to show that the message of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same. Abraham was the founding father of Israel. He's also considered to be the founding father of the monotheistic religions, uh, Islam, um, Judaism, Christianity. I think that uh, all three look to Abraham. But here, Paul speaks of Abraham as being an example of real saving faith in Jesus Christ. I think he also uses Abraham for a very special reason as well, that the Jews had to unlearn some of the stuff that they had learned. The Jewish people generally believed that Abraham was justified because he was circumcised, because he obeyed the law, and because of his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Paul had once accepted all of that, but now everything had changed for him. And again, I just offer a very simple challenge to you. How many things in your life do you have to unlearn? It's really hard to unlearn things. Um, let me give you just one example. I remember a lady came in here once, and I could see that she didn't have the normal reaction. She wasn't bored. She wasn't yawning. Um, and, but I could see that she was getting upset, and she was dripping with sweat. And I thought, oh, there's something not very good. And eventually, uh, she got up and left, and then she came back. And I, I spoke to her at the end and said, you were struggling there. And she said, yes. I said, well, you know, was it something I said? And she said, no, it's just being in a church. It's just so hard being in a church. I shouldn't be in a church. I just feel this is wrong. And her background was that she'd been a Jehovah's Witness, and she had been told that just going to a church was a terrible, terrible thing to do. And although she knew that that was wrong, yet she still felt it. She had to unlearn that. And sometimes I think we have to unlearn a lot of different things. And we, we need to let God's word change us and challenge us. And that's sometimes very uncomfortable. So having said all that, believe it or not, as an introduction, let's go to read verses 1 to 3. Uh, the words will come up on the screen, I think. 
What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham believed God. Let's just think about what that means. And let's go to Genesis chapter 15 and verses 1 to 6, where, which Paul is quoting. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Remember, his, his name was changed later on to uh, Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to stick with. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then these are the words that Paul quotes, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness now you just stop and think about that just for a moment he's told something that really is totally extraordinary it it is it is impossible and yet he believed God now lots of Christians will go of course we believe God of course we believe God no of course we don't and I know that because I know my own heart and I know you And I know this, I know that you'll read things in the Bible and you say, yes, I believe it, but I know that you don't believe it because you don't act upon it. You may believe it in your head, but you don't accept what God says in so many things. And it's it's actually not easy to believe in that way. And this is not just a case of saying, just have faith. It's a case of thinking it through. And then, this is I mean, what God did to Abraham was this. He just said, look at the stars. I made them all now. Let me tell you that you are going to have as much offspring as there are stars. And he believed him. And here's the thing. It was credited, his belief was credited to him as righteousness. Not his works, not circumcision, and not the law. The Jewish rabbis, and Paul knew this because he was one, taught that Abraham was blessed by God because Abraham had obeyed God. But they failed to recognize that Abraham's obedience came after he had been justified, after he had believed God. Now, there are four key events in the life of Abraham that kind of illustrate that. First is simple. He was called to leave his home and his people and go to another land. Secondly, he was told that though he was childless, his posterity would be as numerous as the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky. Thirdly, probably around 25 years later, when he was 99 years old and his wife Sarah was 90, God confirmed the promise of a son, changed his name from Abram to Abraham to signify that he would be the father of many nations. And he gave him circumcision as a sign of that covenant. And fourthly, when God tested Abraham after he had his son Isaac by asking him to sacrifice that son. 
and he showed his willingness to obey, reaffirming the covenant. Two passages in the New Testament are of particular importance in this. Hebrews 11, verse 8. And those words will come up on the screen as well. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. By the way, it's interesting that, um, what it says in Hebrews, because we tend to think of Sarah as being the one who laughed and didn't believe it. But here we're told she did. She did. She considered God faithful. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And then later in that same chapter in Hebrews 11 and verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now, the, all the point of this, the point of citing Abraham, the point of us thinking about what it is to have real faith, it is to do with boasting. Abraham had nothing to boast about. You, you and I boast, of course we boast. We may boast about different things. Um, I'm, I'm quite happy to tell you, and, and I'm sorry, um, Ian and Alicia Kleck, but my grandson is the be most beautiful baby in the world. I'm quite happy to boast about that. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that we will boast about many, many uh, different things. We all, we all boast, of course we do. And uh, I'd, you know, those of you who think you're really humble, you're boasting in your humility. So there's always a way that we find to boast. But boasting in terms of religion and faith, it's just... It's just so wrong. You know, you think about that boasting. I'm, I'm sorry. When someone ha has to tweet, I'm a genius, there's something wrong in that. When someone has to, to say, I'm humble, or boast about that. But in religion, what do we, some people might boast about their jobs, their gifts, their wealth, and so on, but in, it just ends up as self-righteousness. And Paul here is not concerned about winning a theological argument. He is deeply concerned about his fellow Jews in Rome who base their relationship with God on human effort and the law. And he said, it's wrong. You've got this so wrong because even Abraham, who is our forefather, he didn't have his faith, if you like, his relationship with God based upon works and the law. And he's deeply, deeply concerned. And my concern, I would share that concern for you because if you think your relationship with God is based upon your church going or your Bible reading or your prayers or how good a life you've lived, you haven't grasped what the gospel is. It's one other thing that um, if we think about 
verse 3, a really interesting point. Look at what it says. What does Scripture say? Paul asks, what does Scripture say? Now, what's interesting about that is that Paul recognizes the Bible not just as a library of books, but as a unified body of inspired writings. And he makes no distinction between what the Bible says and what God says. This is because what the Bible says is what God says. He doesn't say what was written. He says what is written. And it's written for us today. Scripture is our only final authority. It's the only way that we know what God says. Sometimes, maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, you're saying, well, wait a minute, how do you know that? How can you ever know what God says? Well, let me present it to you in a, in, in a, in a logical way. Just imagine for a moment that there is an almighty God. And because he's almighty, he's capable of revealing himself. Can you think of a better way to reveal yourself than through giving us these letters, these books, his word? An almighty God, by definition, is able to do that, is capable of doing that. When someone says the Bible isn't the word of God because it can't be the word of God because God can't do that, what you're basically saying is it's a circ- you, you yourself are engaging in a circular argument because you're saying almighty God doesn't exist, therefore he couldn't have done it. And then you're going, and I don't believe in almighty God because the Bible's not the word of God. And it goes round and round and round in circles. But it's not illogical at all. It's perfectly reasonable to believe that God could do that. The question then becomes, did he do it? And that's where you examine the scriptures to see and find out. Now, what makes it even more difficult for those who are not Christians in our culture are the number of people who profess to be Christians who deny that the Bible is the word of God. And as I was preparing this, uh, I got sent a, a tweet, just remarkably, from um, Steve Chalk, who's a rather well-known, I think former evangelical, I have to say now, Baptist minister in London. And he says this, he's writing, he's doing 95 theses to do match Martin Luther in their videos. And his latest one, he says this, the Bible is a library and not a book. That's what the Bible literally means. The church over time has come to regard it as sacred. It reflects the moral values and consciousness of each author. And he then actually goes on to say, Moses misheard God. Moses got it wrong. Now, why is that so important? Can you grasp and see the danger of that? What he's doing is he's holding up the Bible and saying there's lots of different bits of this and uh, it's God's discussion with us and we have to find. He goes so far as to say if you want to help your teenagers and if Craig does this next weekend, he's fired. That's the bottom line. He says what you do is you get them to go and write their own version of Genesis 1 and 2, their own creation story because that's all it is. So he's saying the Bible, you just make it up. You make up your own Bible and that's what people do. And that's, why do you think the church is so pathetically weak? I have no message other than what God says in his word. And that's what liberates us and that's what sets us free. Abraham believed God. And we, when we come to the word of God, we either believe it or we don't. And belief is not just believing about, of course, it's placing our faith and trust in 
Well, let's go on and see what happened. Um, Verses 4 to 8. To the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. That's what we sang. Now, how do we understand this? It's fairly straightforward. I I don't suppose many of you get pay packets nowadays. Um, I used to get a pay packet. I used to love it. Uh, I remember working in an oil rig yard for a while and I got this massive pay packet full of notes and I went to the local Christian bookshop immediately and bought all Lloyd-Jones in cash. It was just wonderful. Um, those were the days, but you don't get those that anymore. Most people, uh, unless you're on the black market and illegal, you get paid uh, through banks or, or whatever. But just imagine this. Try doing this. The next time you get paid, if you're blessed enough to be in work, Go to your boss and say, I want to thank you so much for paying for me. You, you are you, such a blessing that you gave me that money and see how you get on. Uh, I mean, have any of you ever thanked your boss for being paid? Why not? Because you got paid for what you did. It's not a gift. You got paid for what you did. You probably think you didn't get paid enough, but you got paid People are not accepted into a right relationship with God because they have earned it. Verse 5 says, God justifies the ungodly. Here is the most incredible thing, I think. There are people who do not believe in God who are nowhere near this building this morning or any other church, and they are closer to God in one way than many people who are attending church right now because the people who are attending church right now think that they are earning their relationship with God. And you can't earn it. But this is the the great thing. God justifies the ungodly. Uh, There's a case of that taxi driver in London who's being released just now. And whatever the rights and wrongs of that, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. I'm not in a position to make any kind of judgment. But I I just thought to myself, I wonder, I suspect the next thing I'm going to hear is he found God in prison. And this morning I heard he found God in prison. Now, I don't want to be too cynical about that. Maybe he did. Who knows? But what if this man who had done these terrible things did find God in prison? There are people who say, that's terrible. How can, he, how can he become a Christian? After all the terrible things he did. Um, that's what Christianity is. All the terrible things that people have done can be forgiven. We have no claim upon God. We have no right. We cannot go to God and say, look, you should forgive me, but don't forgive them because they're worse than me. It is all of grace. And that's why that quote from David from Psalm 32 is wonderful. It shows us that God considers us to have a, state of, a status of righteousness in which our sins are not counted against us, but we are credited with God's righteousness. And you'll see that the word credit is used five times in six verses. 
Now again, this is an experience that some of you will have and some of you won't have a clue about what this means. Isn't it wonderful to be in credit in your bank? Um, what was it? Was it Woody Allen who said that happiness is one pence in credit and unhappiness is just one penny out of credit? Well, we live in a debt-laden society and I suspect many of us are in debt. But when you look at your bank statement, you... Maybe you're one of these people who when you get a bank statement, you just throw it in the bin. Or you, you don't want to think about your finances and then one day you go and do it and you think, I haven't a clue how much money I've got. And you open it and you expect to have maybe five or six hundred pounds and instead you're a thousand pounds overdrawn. And it's a sickening feeling. Well, that's the picture that Paul is using to talk about our relationship with God. Superficially, we may look at our own lives if we look at them at all and think, well, I'm pretty well in credit with God. I've done some good things. You know, most people would say, there's a few bad things. I'm not perfect, ha, ha, ha. But I'm, I do some good stuff here. And then God shows us where we're really at. Maybe even shows us a bit of it. And instead of being in credit, we realize we are greatly in debt. That version of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I don't care how holy you are and I don't care how much you read the Bible and I don't care how good you've been and I don't care all the sins that you can list that you haven't committed. If you genuinely ask God to show you where you stand before him, you will be in minus. Absolutely. I know I'm in minus. I, I, I am. And how, how can that change? How can it be credited? Well, think about it in this way. Money goes into your bank account because of a job that you've done, that you've earned it. But have you ever had the opposite experience of going to your bank and thinking, oh, right, I, just, I hope I'm not too overdrawn. And you go and you find there's a thousand pounds extra. Um, this literally happened to me. I won't bore you with it, but I went to my bank to borrow a, uh, some money because I wanted to buy something. And I sat down with the bank manager. And for those of you who are under 30, this uh, bank managers used to exist. They were wonderful people. They weren't computers. You could go and talk to them. And they would say sensible things to you like, I know you, no, you can't have that, but I will give you this. They didn't just sit at a computer, type it in and say, our algorithm says that you are a risk. Uh, because you're a minister or whatever. They just, they, you, you, you could sit and talk to real people uh, and it was wonderful. So I went to see my bank manager and I made this just incredible case of why I needed 2,000 pounds, which in those days was a lot of money. So you imagine going to the bank and saying you want 20,000 pounds. And so I, you know, I had nothing. I mean, I was a student uh, and I put all this big case and he just sat smiling at me and I thought, why is he smiling? And then he said, uh, Mr. Robertson, because bank managers were very polite and called even young people by their second name. Mr. Robertson, you do not need 2,000 pounds. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna to have to persuade him. I do need it. And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, no, no, Mr. Robertson, you need to listen to me. You do not need 2,000 pounds because yesterday someone came into this bank and put 2,000 pounds into your bank account. I was amazed. To this day, I've still not ever found out who did it. If it was any one of you here, thank you. Um, <laughs> But it's just a, it's a, it's a, it, was, it was a free gift. I didn't earn it. 
It's really quite remarkable. And that's a great picture of what faith is. You don't come to God and you say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it. If you give me this, then you come and you say to the Lord, I acknowledged I have sinned. I am in debt to you right now. I can't pay it back. And you know what God says? Jesus paid it all. You can't pay it back. But Jesus put it right. You receive the gift of Jesus Christ by faith. Imagine if I'd been told you have that £2,000 and I said, no, 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 look, get that out of my bank account. I don't want that money. That thought never even crossed my mind. But um, you, you, you wouldn't do that. And that's what he means when he says his faith was credited as righteousness. By the way, Paul's not saying that faith and righteousness are the same. He's not making faith a righteous work. He's not saying if you just have enough faith, then you will get all of this. He's just simply saying, if you believe what God says, because you believe in Jesus, because you trust Jesus, then God says, I'm going to regard you as I do my own son. Faith is not an alternative to righteousness, but it's the means by which we are declared righteous. Now you'll see that on that quote from David from Psalm 32, David refers three times to sin. He talks about transgressions, sins, and failures. Transgression is breaking God's law. Uh, sin is disobedience to God, stepping over an unknown boundary. Transgression is a known boundary. And failure is just failing to reach God's standard. And you'll note that three times he tells us that God has forgiven, has covered, and will never count us against us our sins. Again, there isn't a single person here who is not guilty of sin in some way. You have not only broken God's law in the sense of going against what God says, but you've not reached up to God's standard at all. And yet... There's this marvelous promise, and this is what the phrase justification means, that we are forgiven, we are covered, we are renewed, we are restored. God credits to us faith as righteousness. God credits to us as a righteousness apart from works. God does not count our sins against us. Now let me say something that's just a little bit technical and a bit hard, but it is quite important. In some parts of the Christian church, particularly the Catholic church, they teach that this, is, um, this righteousness is infused within us. And that's not what this is teaching here. The, the kind of technical word is imputation. And what that means, it's a legal term. It's how God looks upon us. It's not that God makes us righteous and then he says, okay, they're good. It's that God looks upon us as righteous even though we are not because of what Jesus has done. And then that changes absolutely everything. So, it's straightforward. Abraham believed and Abraham was blessed. So when I wish you a happy new year, that's what I wish for you. I wish that you would experience God's blessing. I pray that you and I would believe and would know just that tremendous blessing. As I said, we'll look at part two, Abraham's faith, <coughs> and how that expressed itself this evening. 
But maybe let me summarize it in this way. Returning back um, to happiness. I guess um, clothing is quite important. Maybe more important for some of you than for others. But I guess if you're really short of clothes, then Christmas, I'm sorry, I'm I'm the stereotype. I did used to get socks knitted by my granny, um, which I didn't particularly look forward to. But there comes a point in your life when you appreciate socks uh, and clothes and all the different things that you get. And I guess if you were looking for clothes and you got some really nice clothes for Christmas, you would be really happy. Well, what God offers to do for us is to clothe us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, you don't stand before me with your own goodness and your own righteousness because as the Bible says, that's just like filthy rags. You can get out your glad rags, you can get the best clothes that you've got, but it just doesn't work. All the good works that you have done, you can't but you can have the clothing of Jesus Christ. John Wesley translated um, Count Zinzendorf's great hymn, Jesu, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. It's flaming worlds in these arrayed. With joy shall I lift up my head. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone was in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. When we say a happy new year, we've talked about what happiness is. What about newness? What about knowing that you have a genuine new start? Most of us at New Year have a kind of false new start. New diet, new exercise regime, new I'm not going to be nasty to people on social media anymore. That's a personal one. Um, New whatever. And, you know, I'm going to be nicer at work. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And come January the 8th, it's all gone because the old you is still there. But here's this most wonderful of things, that being reborn, being given a new life, being made a new creation, how is that possible? It is possible through what Jesus has done. It is possible through believing the good news about Jesus Christ. Because if you really believe it, It means you don't try and justify yourself. It means you don't fear condemnation. It means you don't seek to boast about yourself and elevate yourself above others. It means that you see your beauty in Jesus Christ, that you trust absolutely and totally in Jesus Christ. And that is offered to anyone here who is not a Christian. And I urge you to think about it and to consider it and to come to know Christ. That is how you know God. And those of us who are believers, just think about that very simple phrase. Abraham believed, 
and Abraham was blessed. And he is our example of faith. It's true that if we are already believers, we still need to hear the gospel and we still need to preach the gospel to ourselves because our heart's inclination and the devil's methodology, if you like, is to get us to turn away from the gospel. Having begun by faith, we want to continue like the Galatians did by works, but we can't. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't work. In fact, it's almost the opposite. It means that because we've been set free, we are free to serve the living God. And it's just, it's just a wonderful and a glorious liberty because we're set free from this self-absorption. We're set free from the fears. We're set free from thinking, well, what if it doesn't work out? Because we know that everything is in the hands of God and we know that Christ will take us home and we know that the best is yet to be. So we, we literally have nothing to lose, nothing. Abraham believed and Abraham was blessed. Maybe happy new year might be better put, happy new you. And maybe you and I can know and experience that. And that, by the way, is why we are so passionate about the gospel and so passionate about the Bible as the word of God. Not because we want to have theological arguments, not because we want to prove that we're better than other people, because we're not but because it is this gospel and this gospel alone that changes people. Everything else is, a, dare I use a Trumpism? It's fake news. Everything else is fake news. But this is good news. And once you take away from it, once you subtract from the Bible, you are then removing Jesus Christ. Erasmus had this beautiful saying. He said, when Jesus well, if you read the Bible, you are presented with Jesus Christ and he comes to you in a way that is as real, in fact, more real than if he was physically present with you. And so when people take away from the Bible, what they're doing is they're taking Christ away from people. And all that we're trying to do here, and I hope in this new year, whatever happens in this church, all we will do is keep saying, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is his word. Believe and be blessed. Believe and be saved. How can they believe without someone telling them? And how can they tell unless they are sent? That's why that verse in Corinthians is so important. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation, the message of of the gospel, the message of God not counting people's sins against them. I'll tell you this. If you really believed in your heart, if you thought about it and contemplated it and understood that all your sins are forgiven, then tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, all next week, you could not but be a witness. Not because you're yelling at people who believe the Bible. Not because you're wearing the Jesus Loves You t-shirt. But purely and simply because your whole life is changed. Your whole attitude is impacted by the wonderful news that you are forgiven. Blessed is the man or the woman whose sin 
the Lord does not count against them. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that you would continue to encourage us. We thank you for the wonderful example of Abraham. We thank you for the teaching of Paul. We thank you for the early believers in Rome and elsewhere. And we thank you that that gospel has remained the same through all the ages, despite all the attempts of the evil one to distort and twist and turn away. We thank you that your words will last forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your words continues forever. And we thank you that whatever our fears and doubts, we can be absolutely sure and place our absolute trust in you. We bless you, O Lord, and grant that any here who have not done so yet would do so even at this moment, and grant that those of us who have would repent of our sin again and would turn to you and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, in the full and certain assurance that you will. In your name, amen. We're going to sing that song I mentioned.